0: okay good well welcome everybody welcome back um, first thing is just a little bit of a little bit of housekeeping if you want a book just let me know okay there's three left anybody want a syllabus everybody have a syllabus so far so good you don't have one okay So, ladies and gentlemen, um, what we've got this evening, when we do 2 Corinthians, what I want to tell you is that this is the hardest letter of all, alright? Everything's easy compared to 2 Corinthians, it's the hardest by far, and, and hopefully I'll be able to explain that, uh, but what we're doing here now, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stick to my main idea, And my main idea is uh, what I call biblical thematics, okay? The idea is that you can uh, get the core of the message if you can stick to, keep going back to one theme, okay? Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's main theme is redemptive suffering, all right? Paul's main theme is redemptive suffering, and the good that comes about as a consequence of it. So when you hear 2 Corinthians... You hear something read in Mass, you're not quite sure what I might be talking about, head back to redemptive suffering, and I'm going to explain to you what that's all about as, as, we, as we go along. Now, on the knowledge that some people, you know, maybe they don't always hit every week, maybe you missed last week, and by the way, that's perfectly fine. We're going summer easy, all right? Nobody's taking roll call, no final exam, no tests. So you're welcome to come or not come as, as you wish. I'm going to give you just a very brief overview of 1 Corinthians, just a just a little brief review, okay, just to bring you back up to speed. And let's remember that when we talk about first, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, one of the main players in the letter is the city. Okay? The importance of this city, Corinth. Right? Why was Corinth important? Because of travel. How do people travel? Well, they traveled over land, but they also traveled over sea. Traveling overseas was a lot safer. Traveling overseas was a lot faster. Well, if you're going to any of these major areas to Rome, well, you've got a choice to make. You can sail around the Peloponnesus, right? This is over 200 miles, or you can take your boat to Corinth, get out of your boat, roll your boat across uh, on some logs. They call it the Dialcos, the place where you drag the boat across. have the boat again. Four miles across, you save two days. All right, so this became a very, very important place also became a big center of immorality, right? Why? Well, you've all heard about a town, a port town. What do you say about a town of two ports, right? It's even worse. So when you hear about St. Paul's letters to the Corinthians, you want to think about St. Paul's letter to New Orleans at Mardi Gras, right? St. Paul's letter to Rio de Janeiro at Carnival, because that was really what he was up against, okay? So here's the story of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul's on his second missionary journey. He's traveling through the city to Charles, to Philippi, to Thessalonica, up to Berea, down to Athens. He makes that speech that I mentioned last week. It's on the cover of your book. Tries to reason with the Athenians. Tries to bring them over to the reason of the faith. They dismiss him. They laugh at him. Paul goes down to Corinth. Paul has some pretty good success in Corinth. He has some pretty good success in Corinth, much to his surprise. He stays there for a year and a half until people start getting opposed to him. Well, the last time Paul got opposed, he caused problems for his communities. So Paul decides to leave. Okay, Paul decides to leave Corinth. A few years go by, Paul's back here in Ephesus. Word gets out that Paul's back in Ephesus. Remember now, Paul's world famous. We never have to hear him speak. There's no recording, there's no video. But he must have been made quite a splash because people from all over the Mediterranean want to hear him and I mentioned last time, one of, the, one of the major players in the church of Corinth, a man named Apollos, crossed over from Alexandria and Egypt just to hear Paul. So Paul hears back in Ephesus. Word gets out to the court that Paul's back in Ephesus, okay? And so they send Paul uh, a request. Will you please uh, you know, help us out with, with, some of our, uh, w- w- with some of our problems? Will you uh, help us out with you know, the questions that we had against uh, incest, lawsuits, factions, Paul sends a letter. Paul sends it back to Corinth, okay? That was a story from last week's. Okay, now, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. How did this one come about? Okay. 2 Corinthians has a little bit of a murky origin. We don't know exactly what happened, like what happened with 1 Corinthians. We've got a pretty good idea what happened. We can piece together from all the evidence a pretty good story. And this is what it looks like, okay? Um... When Paul sends his letter over to the Corinthians, word gets back to Paul, who's still in Ephesus, hey, here, three years. Word gets back to Paul they didn't like the letter. Right? They didn't like the letter. Now, it's not the first time that people have missed greatness in their own time, right? They called Thomas Aquinas the dumb ox. Okay? Uh, Vincent, uh, Vincent Van Gogh, they said he had no talent. Uh, I was trying to think of some other ones. Michael Jordan kicked off his high school basketball team. Okay? And uh, Einstein was kicked out of school, said he might, will never amount to anything, and the Corinthians didn't like First Corinthians. Okay, So Paul's very upset. He poured his heart and his soul into it. Paul travels to Corinth. It's all the origins of Second Corinthians. Okay, They don't like the letter. Paul travels to Corinth. He makes a quick visit. He tries to, 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 to make things better, but things get worse. In fact, things get much worse. What ends up happening when Paul is over there is he gets attacked by people. He gets attacked by people verbally. They try to undermine his authority. They try to challenge his authority as an apostle. They say his word isn't worth anything. They claim that they're superior to him. And he even gets physically attacked. He even gets physically attacked in in the uh, the, the Agora in Corinth. And all the people who he's known, all Paul's friends, he's known him for a year and a half, they say nothing. They do nothing. They do nothing. You've got to try to imagine now. That would be very upsetting. Paul gets very upset by that, and, uh, and, he, and, he, and he gets up and, he, and he, he leaves. He goes back to Ephesus. Okay, so Paul tries to clear things up. Paul goes back to Ephesus. Now, something happened to Ephesus. Are you with me so far? This is the origin of 2 Corinthians. Something happens in Ephesus. There's a riot in Ephesus. Did I tell you about the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury who said, when I preach, when, when Paul preached, they rioted. When, when I preached, they served me tea. <laughs> so Paul, Paul causes a riot in Ephesus. Here's how the riot comes about. Okay, In Ephesus, there's a main temple to the goddess Artemis, all right? Artemis is Diana, same goddess. Diana, goddess of the moon, goddess of the hunt. Okay? Huge temple to Artemis um, in, in, in Ephesus. And uh, they, they had this bizarre statuette of Artemis. You've probably seen it if I showed you a picture of it. It's a bizarre woman with like 30 breasts okay, for some strange reason. And they made these little silver statuettes of Artemis. And, you know, you can still get these today. I've actually had a chance to, to, to go to Ephesus. And it's a little symbol of Ephesus, the little silver statuettes of Artemis. And the silversmiths were making silver statues of her, and they were making a little livelihood okay, with, with, with their silver statues. Now, what happens? Paul shows up in town. Paul starts preaching. Paul starts making converts. What do you think happens to the silver business in Ephesus? Yeah, the silversmith, the silver business take, takes a turn for the worse and the people are losing customers and they're not very happy about it and there, be, there ends up being a mob of silversmiths who run Paul out of town on a rail. Here, I'll just read you this little passage here. It's from Acts of the Apostles. All the back backstory of, uh, of these things are, are, are found in Acts of the Apostles. Here's from Acts chapter 19, verse 23. At that time, there arose no little stir concerning the way. That was Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of like occupation, and he said, "Men, you've known that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only at Ephesus but almost all throughout Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that." Gods made with hands are not gods at all. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis herself might count for nothing and that she might be disposed of her magnificence, she whom Asia and all the world worship. So he stirs up all these silversmiths and Artemis in, in, in Ephesus, they start saying, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, down with Paul and Paul gets run out of town. okay? Now Paul gets run out of town. And Paul's on the run again. Well, Paul goes back to the place we he knew best. He has a lot of friends up here in Philippi. We'll get to that when we go over the letter to the Philippians. Um, but but Paul's, Paul's on his way back up to the to Philippians. And on his way up there, who does he meet? He meets Titus. Okay? Titus is on his way back with the results of the letter that Paul wrote trying to clear things up after he was kicked out of town. And good news. Good news, they liked it. It made peace. It restored unity. Now Paul's encouraged. Paul's encouraged. Hooray! My friends in, in, in Corinth have managed to clear things up. And Paul writes another letter. Let's get to the bottom of all these letters, okay? Let's get to the bottom of all these letters. I told you about this last week. And I said I'd ask you to hang on until this week. Um, there are four letters to the Corinthians. All right? And I kind of enticed you about saying we have number one, we have number two. Uh, what about the other letters? Are they lost? We might actually have them. I think you'll find this interesting. There's four letters to the Corinthians. Okay. Now here in 1 Corinthians, chapter five, verse nineteen, it mentions another letter, which proves just you know that, that, that clearly First Corinthians, what we call First Corinthians, that wasn't the first one written. All right. So Paul's referencing another another letter, and they're in five in chapter five. Verse 9, First Corinthians 5, uh, um, um, 19. I'm, I'm not sorry, five, 5, 9. That's a misprint up there on the board. It's 5, 9. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, don't associate with sinners. This is, this is whatever the first letter was, that was it. Okay? Okay. The second letter, what we know is First Corinthians. All right. Now we're in Second Corinthians and here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, there's a reference to another letter to the Corinthians. Another letter to the Corinthians. He calls it the letter of tears. And then, of course, we have 2 Corinthians. So there's four letters to the Corinthians out there. All right? Now, the interesting thing is that we might actually have all four letters to the Corinthians. And let's go over why. Okay? Let's go over why. If you ever take a you might want to, if you have a Bible, you might be interested in looking this up right now along with me. If not, make a note of this and go home and do this for yourself. I think you'll find this interesting. 2 Corinthians, verse 14 to 71 might be 1 Corinthians. It might be this letter. Okay? Now, take a look at this. I'm going to read to you, for those of you who don't have Bibles, I'm going to read to you from 2 Corinthians, verse uh, chapter 6. From verse 13, I'm going to skip this section. I'm going to skip this section. I'm going to go straight to verse 7, verse 2. Now tell me if this makes sense. Here we go. Our mouth is open wide to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Open your hearts to us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. Doesn't that just flow? If you take a look at chapter 14-7-1, and you take it in the light of what he said here at 5-9, don't associate with sinners, don't associate with sinners, look what you discover. Look what you discover. This thing that doesn't belong, it's just sitting there. Don't be mismated with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with iniquity? What fellowship has light with darkness? It just sort of comes out of nowhere. And it seems like he cut it and pasted it, put it in. Is that actually First Corinthians? It might be. It just might be. Okay. And then we're going along and we come up to chapter ten, and suddenly, right? Suddenly, thanks be to God for your my, for his inexpressible gift. Paul's so happy. Paul's so exuberant, right? And suddenly, the whole nature of the letter changes. Like, like it's a totally different letter. And it sounds a lot like the he references here, the letter appears. Could that be the actual third Corinthians lost letter? Might be. Might just be. Because this complete change, it's almost like someone cut it and pasted it. Okay. Now, make sense? All right. There's no smoking gun here. This would be the smoking gun, so to speak. If we ever found an ancient writing of 1 Corinthians of 2 Corinthians. If we ever found an ancient writing of 2 Corinthians that didn't have these sections in it, we know for sure that these are the two lost letters of the Corinthians they are contained inside 2 Corinthians. We'd know that for sure. right? We'd know someone somewhere cut it and paste it. Here's the trouble. Every 2nd letter of the Corinthians, ancient authorship, without exception, has it just as we have it. So... If they cut and paste these two lost letters to the Corinthians and put them into Second Corinthians, if they're cut and paste, uh, we, we, we just use internal evidence to come to that conclusion. Um, but this is the kind of thing that scholars banter back and forth and debate about. Interesting little side note. What if they're digging up in Egypt or Greece or Turkey or somewhere, and they come up with two more letters? What if, what if they're digging up and they could just like the Dead Sea Scrolls and they come up with two more letters? Question for you: Would they count as scripture? Would they count as scripture? No, they wouldn't. You want to know why? Because when we talked about in our first class what makes the New Testament, we said the one the one key defining element that made something New Testament scripture was when it was proclaimed for the first time, the people who heard it in their ancient churches resonated together, they said, yes, that's our faith. They knew they were listening to something that was an expression of what they believed. If they dig up some letter somewhere, some fragment, some parchment that no one had ever copied, that no one had ever uh, it would have passed, it would not have passed the original test of all the other writings of scripture that that, that were contained in the New Testament. However, personally, you know, I think about all four letters and then they're all in 2 Corinthians. Which, by the way, is why 2 Corinthians is so convoluted. One of the reasons why is that, you know, it might be three letters in one. Okay, So this is why I say this is Paul's toughest letter. All right, now, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians, and I hope you find this helpful. Right? 2 Corinthians is different from all the other letters because Paul's not trying to solve a problem like 1 Corinthians. He's not trying to teach anything like he did in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. What Paul's trying to do, he's trying to make peace. Paul's pouring himself out. He's defending himself against attacks. And he's doing so now in the context of suffering. Paul is defending himself by explaining Christian suffering. Uh, He's trying to bury the hatchet, and this is is how he does it. Uh, A little side note here, interesting uh, interesting little side note. Paul mentions that he has to leave Ephesus before Pentecost. For two reasons, this tells us this gives us the date of the letter, which is 57 A.D., and it shows they're already celebrating feasts on the church calendar. That's kind of cool, isn't it? As early as 57 A.D., they've got a Pentecost. Sometimes people wonder where do we get these feasts? Where do we get these uh, church calendar things? They're, they're, they go back to time immemorial. Okay, just 25 years after Christ, they're actually celebrating a feast of Pentecost. Okay, yeah. Yes. He's celebrating now as a Christian, which is just evidence that they've got a Christian calendar, or at least the beginnings of one. Okay, so um, um, so anyway, we got we got we got the, the, the uh, letter to Paul to Corinthians. There's there's uh, three main parts of 2 Corinthians. Okay, I've got this fourth book down here as Letter of Tears. I'm not counting it as a main part because I, I, I kind of think it stands aside on its own. Uh, but this is what 2 Corinthians is. He reconciles himself with the community, right? He defends his ministry, and he takes up a collection. How do you like that? Okay, he takes up a collection. And by the way, everywhere Paul went, he took up a collection. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay, so just to let you know, neither that 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 was not something that was an innovation. That goes back to Saint Paul. Remember when I was in the seminary, they said, "Hey, Paul, Paul took up a collection. Don't be too proud to ask ask for money." Um, Okay. So here we are. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about Paul's effort to reconcile himself with the Christian community. And this is, in my opinion, the most important part of the letter. This is the key to understanding the, the whole of the letter. I'm reading from chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verses 3 to 7. Okay? Okay. You've heard this before, I'm sure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort we've received from Him. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ do we share abundantly in His comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And when we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Also translated as consolation. All right, that sounds lovely, doesn't it? All right, here's the trouble with that. Um, I don't know about you, but I haven't always felt so comforted in my afflictions. I haven't always felt so comforted in in, in in my hardships. But this is, I think, where we get a little bit of an insight here. Remember now, Paul didn't write in English. Paul wrote in Greek, all right? And the one fact that breaks this subject wide open is the Greek word for comfort. The Greek word for comfort. It's parakalein. Parakalein. Now, here's the advantage of knowing just a little bit of the original language. Parakalein is the same word for encouragement and strength. The same word. Comfort, encouragement, strength. Okay? So, a lot of times, you know, I go to... Like I was just at the hospital today... And you have this idea in your mind, you know, I wish I could just take all your pain away. I wish I just had a magic wand, and I could just take all of your pain and all of your suffering away. But you know what? That's not the way God is. God doesn't take the hurt away. He gives you the strength that you need to bear it. He gives you the encouragement that you need to bear it. And then you, you can go strengthen and encourage others. Um, you know the people who are the most helpful in helping others with their sufferings are those who suffered themselves there's one thing that I found that's actually the most consoling to somebody who is uh, who's in a time of suffering or hardship is that I've said this what you're going through right now this can help you someday and one day you are going to know exactly what to say when someone else needs this help this is this is like school for you and they're like Okay, I can, I can hang on knowing this is going to help me help somebody someday. Interesting, you know, the word comfort comes from uh, two Latin words. comfortus, comfortus. Who knows what com means in Latin? With what's fortis? With strength or bravery. Comfort. Even the word itself is, you know, etymologically speaking. God doesn't take away the hurt. He gives us the bravery. He gives us the strength. This is Paul's theology of suffering. Okay. It's foundational to his theology. And the idea here um, is... It's also connected with his idea of the mystical body. We're all united in Christ. We're all like cells in a body. We really all do pulsate with one life. And in baptism, we, we are one body in Christ. It's kind of a mysterious idea. And so he is actually present with us. Okay? You're never suffering alone. Okay? You're never you're never completely suffering alone, and when and that, that presence that he has with you, that's your strength, that's your encouragement, that's your ability to then turn and go and share that with other people. Now if I had to summarize the main message thrust of Corinthians, I, I would I would really anchor it heavily on that, because he uses that idea then he goes and defends himself which we'll talk about later. After that, he has a little a transitional statement here. We don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the affliction we experience in Asia. That whole little that little phrase, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, that's a phrase that's used in, uh, in Greek letters. That it, it shows the, the author is changing subjects now. Okay, He's going to switch away from his opening now. He's going to change subjects. The next thing Paul's going to do is he's going to defend his ministry. All right? Remember, Paul went to Corinth. Paul got attacked. Paul wants to defend his ministry. Um, and uh, we got a little insight into this as to, as to who attacked him, right? As to who attacked him. And this this is now from chapter 4, right, verses 1 to 12. All right. I'm sure you've heard all these things before. They're all, um, they're all read at Mass. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth... We would commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For it is... The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God on the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. We're always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death is at work in us, life in you. What the heck is he talking about? What the heck was that all about? Okay. He's referencing his attack and he's doing it, okay, he's defending himself against his attack and he's doing it by talking about his attackers. Who's ever heard of Gnosticism? Okay. Who's never heard of Gnosticism? Who's not sure? Who doesn't feel like raising their hand? Every time I do that, when I go to a grade school, I get 100% commitment. Everybody has one of two opinions. You do that among adults, some people, they don't feel like raising their hand. Okay. So anyway, just in case you haven't heard of Gnosticism, I've got to tell you a little bit of a, a, bit of a background to this. Um, first of all, Paul's defending himself, as I said, against, his, against his, uh, his attackers, and it turns out that his attackers were Gnostics. Now, what's a Gnostic? Okay. A Gnostic was actually the follower of a different religion. People sometimes say Gnosticism was an ancient Christian heresy. The fact is, Gnosticism was a totally different religion, and I could go off on a tangent about this, but, but I'm not going to. Um, Gnosticism actually is coming back as a prevailing philosophy in our society today. This, uh, as long as I'm on this tangent, I think I'll go on it. Okay? As long as I'm on this. In our society today, we have this prevailing uh, opinion that there's no such thing as a difference between a man and a woman, right? um, that every, there's no such thing as human nature, uh, that, 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 that nothing is essentially human, that, uh, that, that there's a strong sense of like this subjectivity and like this uh, sense in which there's one single human nature, but there's no real expressions of it in real individuals, and those real individuals are real men or real women or real boys or real girls. That's Gnosticism. It's actually, no one calls it Gnosticism, but it's, it's absolutely core to the ancient Gnostic idea. Now, this is the rest of the idea of ancient Gnosticism, okay? Gnostics believed that there was a secret knowledge that you had to get. The word for knowledge is gnosis. That's where we get the word Gnostic. A secret knowledge that you had to get. If you got the secret knowledge, you'd be set free. Okay, You were a soul trapped in a body as a Gnostic. And if you got the secret knowledge, your soul would be set free You go up to a higher realm of existence. That was Gnosticism. Now, they passed it off as Christianity. Or maybe they thought that Christianity was Gnosticism. But Gnosticism predates Christianity. Okay, so it was this secret knowledge. And that's why Paul in here, he says, our gospel uh, isn't veiled. Okay? And if it is veiled, it's only veiled to those who are perishing. Okay? The truth of the gospel. This is something that is plain as day. So Paul's defending himself now against against Gnostics, um, and the opponents of, of Paul. They had they had they had skill. They had eloquence. They had abilities. They must have been very good speakers. Very well educated. And Paul now brings this theology of suffering back in when he starts talking about earthen vessels here. Okay, and he starts talking about. Uh, Uh, afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. You know what Paul's talking about there? It's the same idea Paul's talking about when he says, in my weakness I am strong. Do you know what that means? If you don't know what it means, let me clarify this, because it's key to Paul, it's key to Corinthians, it's key to Christianity, and it's key to understanding this letter. When I'm weak, it's then that I'm strong. Okay? Can I tell you a little story that might help explain this? Many, many times now as a priest, I have uh, put my little thoughts together, right? And I've gotten up and I've given my little homily. And sometimes it goes just as I planned, just as I planned. And I walk out of church, I pat myself on the back, and I think to myself, good job, okay? And the people, they walk out of church and they shake my hand and they say, "Thanks, Father. thanks, Father, thanks, Father, thanks, Father, thanks, Father, thanks, Father, thanks, Father. Thanks father, thanks father regular old day at the office, okay? But then, every once in a while, there's one of these days uh, I get interrupted, I get called to the hospital, I don't get to sleep that night, something happens, I get distracted, I get discouraged, and do you know what happens when I when that occurs? Yes. Father, that was the best thing I've ever heard! <laughs> well, that was so great, and I'm, I'm baffled. I'm baffled, because I just don't get it. But you know what's actually going on? The truth is, God is better than than you, right? Grace is stronger than your strengths. Uh, the, the, the There's an underlying truth here is that regardless of what you can do, grace can do more. And you want to know what? Grace shines through most perfectly when you are a little bit weak. When you get to heaven, you're going to be praised by God for all the good work that's gone on that he's done through your life. Unfortunately, you're not going to be able to claim credit for any of it. It's all going to be stuff that happened when you weren't aware you were even doing anything. (laughs) It's going to be God working through you, playing you like an instrument. And Paul's saying this. These Gnostics, these people, they're so proud of their abilities. I'm an earthen vessel. He's hearkening back to the Old Testament now. Uh, Jeremiah talked about earthen vessels. Um, Isaiah talked about earthen vessels. Uh, and, And it was this idea that you could carry a treasure in a pot made out of clay. The, the, the clay can break, but it's the treasure that's valuable. And Paul says, "God's grace is the treasure." I'm the pot man out of clay. I'm at my best when I'm when I'm weak, and so are you. And so, no, I don't boast like they boast. I don't take credit in my skill. I don't take credit in my ability. That's the stuff that gets in the way of what God wants to do. I'm at my best when that stuff's at its weakest. Okay. And Paul says, "When are you at your best as a Christian?" When by your suffering, God's able to really work through you. That's the mystery. Okay, that's the mystery. The meaning of suffering. That's what makes. That's what helps keep us going. If we don't know what it means, it's it's, it's utterly debilitating. But if we can know that God is is at his best in us at, at those times when we can when we can know uh, um, that we're sharing in, in in Christ's passion, so we can share in his glory later. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Hey, Corinthians, Christian newbies, you guys don't get it. Preaching and boasting, that's the stuff of paganism. The real greatness comes from God. And yes, I boast in my weakness because that's when it shows forth at the be- at its best. Now, he doesn't mean to say go don't go, go and try, okay? Right? We still have our we, we, You know God gives us our tasks. We do the best that we can. It's just that all those things we do by our own ability, they're like kind of at a human level. The supernatural goodness. That happens beyond our ability. That happens when we're at our weakest. Right? And that's what Paul's talking about here. And that's his defense of his ministry. And he's actually teaching him something very important at, at, at the same time. Okay? Um, so Paul, he, uh, he, he, he calls this, there's authenticity of his, as his, of his apostleship. We don't lose heart. Although our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed every day this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we don't look to things that are seen, we look to things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Okay? So there's Paul's defense. That's what Paul's doing. Remember, so when you hear these things about... Uh, from Second Corinthians, uh, when, when Paul's talking about the value of suffering, my strength is in my weakness, when he talks about people that are accusing him, putting him down, I hope you remember the Gnostics, they're boasting... Uh, And Paul's explanation of what God is doing, okay, what God is doing is what's what's most important of all. A little break for food? Sound good?